Welcome to another episode of the NPCs Discuss, where we talk about the video game industry, events, history, controversies, and more. On today's episode, video games as we know them have been around for nearly 50 years, with the release of the Magnavox Odyssey in September of 1972. Over time, the industry grew, crashed, revived, and regrew, and we have experienced nine generations of consoles and games with memories and experiences tied to each. But to experience those classics in their original form this day and age has become a challenge, as the efforts to maintain a large swath of titles including those with now-defunct online services increases with complexity each and every day. What does that mean for those working to collect and archive those games? Well, let's talk about it in this week's topic, Video Game Preservation. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Anchor.fm. And welcome back to our episode of the NPCs Discuss. It is July 22nd, 2021. My name is Travis, and of course, I am joined by Kyle. Kyle, hello. What's up? Not much, man. Not a lot here. So let's talk about some video game preservation. So, of course, that is our topic for this week. Um as you know, of course, being a former employee of GameStop, how mm-hmm. important it was, especially for GameStop itself, to sell, use video games. Of right. course, an act of preservation on its own. Um, didn't ish. Necess- yeah, ish. Yeah. I mean, it definitely made some games there, of course. Um, there there were honestly, um, and granted, I don't know if there's much to preserve here, but th- there were some times that we also destroyed video games. We would get in order to penny out games, ring them all out, and then break the discs and toss them. Yep, I remember actually some of those when I'd come by to visit around kind of like closing in that. Yeah. And that. So yeah, I remember those ones for sure. But even if GameStop wasn't necessarily that way, you and I, of course, are in our 30s. We've mm-hmm. been through the majority of console generations now. Of course, our intro, we talked about there being nine console generations, of course, I'd say probably for you and I, a lot of our emphasis has been from the third console generation and up talking about the like the Super Nintendo, um, some of the original Sega systems like the Mega Drive and the Genesis, Mm -hmm. you know, so we've been around actually for some time. And even for some of us, like if you look there on my shelf, I've got a, you know, a Nintendo 64 with a couple games there. So in one way or another, you know, I know you've got some older consoles as well, too. Oh, I've got pretty games. much exactly. all of them. <laughs> yeah, especially you being a big proponent of like the Sega Dreamcast. You've probably got quite a bit of stuff there in your collection oh, yeah. with it. No, so. And, and I, I do have a, a NES and mm-hmm. a, a Super NES and a regular Genesis. Um, so, yeah, I, I've. I've got a fair collection of of classic consoles. Yeah. So in one way or another, you and I kind of are contributing in some form, at least to video game preservation one way or another, even if we're not actively doing anything with right. the systems or the games themselves. We're, of course, acting at least in some capacity. But I think really for anybody out there who's been playing games as long as we have, there's probably a collection of games that they might have that, you know, go back to the days of when they were kids with the NES or Super Nintendo or even before that. You know, the talking about the Magnavox Odyssey there in the intro. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, we're coming up on 50 years of this, almost 50 years next year since the first since what's considered the first generation of video games. Yeah. You know, at least they're looking at first generation of consoles more specifically, too, because there were video games kind of beforehand, but not really as such. But anyway, in the world of video game preservation, of course, um, 
We are by no means experts on this, of course. Um, so we are going to be doing our best to talk about this and at least what we've observed, both mm -hmm. as kind of an outsider with myself not actually having worked in the video game industry and Kyle, of course, being a previous employee of GameStop as well and having given us that little bit of insight of discs being broken. Um, but let's kind of hop into some of this and kind of what we've seen and observed in a lot of this going on and especially some of the more recent controversies. So let's kind of talk about what it means to actually preserve video games. So for us, you know, one of the best things we've got out there to look out here is uh, Wikipedia. Thank God for the internet. Preserving right. all this information, right? So Wikipedia has it on here defining it as a form of preservation of applied to the video game industry that includes but is not limited to digital preservation. Such preservation efforts include archiving development source code and art assets, digital copies of video games, emulation of video game hardware, maintenance and preservation of specialized video game hardware such as arcade games and video game consoles, and digitization of print video game magazines and books prior to the digital revolution. Nice, nice TLDR there for, of course, what video game preservation actually is. Right. Um, so starting off, of course, on where the importance of preservation really comes down to is a lot of it is similar to like preserving art or um, classical books, um, you know, especially history books and things. Though, too, right. Is that, it, is that it's preserving a point in time of where things were as well as providing resources for future generations as well. But this also goes beyond the uh, collection aspect, you know, and, and, and beyond, you know, the, the massive collectors out there that, you know, we, we saw the, the Mario go for one point whatever million dollars. You're talking the Super Mario 64 cartridge yeah. that was auctioned uh, just this last week. Just this last week. Two weeks ago, excuse yeah. me. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, um... We're we're also talking down to source code um, of video games because there are so many games now that I mean you look at like games like this is just a for instance Diablo original Diablo all the source code is gone one hundred percent gone Blizzard doesn't know what happened to it the same can be said even for the most recent release of the mass effect legendary edition that they weren't able to recover some bits of dlc yeah. because the code was completely gone that's that's actually the same thing yeah. happened with diablo 2 um but on the other uh side of that coin uh just recently in a s random stack of games turned into a mu museum a, a random stack of floppy disks i should say mm -hmm. there was ID Studios um, project for Super Mario 3 PC edition. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So, I I, I mean, it, it does go way further than, you know, just beyond collecting the discs, collecting mm -hmm. the systems. Uh, there, there's a lot um, that goes into the art that um, I think needs to be discussed as well. Okay. Um be because that you think about it, uh, a lot of companies, there's so little documentation that goes into games, especially games that haven't been released or were so close to release that, you know, they got canned last minute, so we never saw anything. Mm -hmm. um, where Where is the per preservation of those projects? You know, that, that is te technically still a form of art, 
for quite a few people. And, you know, even for us in a way. I mean, we consume it. We, we talk about it. You know, we, we, we think about it. Um, we, we even have discussions about what, what we've been playing on a weekly basis. So, I mean, preserving those ideas, it, I, I think, is a, is a major point. Mm-hmm. You know, no, exactly. Especially because you look at um, as an example of preservation, maybe not necessarily video games using it here, but a good example is because um, I really like the comment you made there, especially about kind of like the, the period in time that something came out mm-hmm. is you look at um, what Warner Brothers did when they re-released some of their older cartoons. I think it was Disney as well, but I think I know it was actually Warner Brothers, I think is that they actually had a disclaimer at the beginning of the old cartoon, of course, that this is a product of its time, but to edit it, of course, to be able to meet the societal norms that we have now, right? <laughs> excuse me, is disingenuous, of course, and and detracts away, of course, from what the cartoon actually was. But of course, the disclaimer is that this is not representative of our company now, is of course, we've we've evolved past this. Now, you look at like some of these some of these past games, of course, you know, there were some that were kind of way off the wall. Like I'll drop one out as an example. Like what is it? Plumbers don't wear ties. Which is getting know. a release on the Switch. Yeah, which is really bizarre, of course. But it's another one though that was a product of its time where, you know, video games weren't necessarily big, crazy, mainstream, oh my gosh, like everywhere, everywhere. There were there was still a big audience for them, but mm. it wasn't crazy, crazy. Like where I feel like you can't turn a corner here anymore nowadays and it's like there's not a video game somewhere. Um, but to edit out or or do anything there, I feel like especially for like the original, I don't know why they're re-releasing it, but especially for the original kind of detracts at least from that point in time when things came out though too. You mm-hmm. know, it's like it's like you're trying to preserve something of source, of course, in its full um, capacity and what it used to be to remove anything from it. It's like imagine if like the movie Blazing Saddles came out now. It wouldn't work. No, it no. Wouldn't. Or re-release it. They couldn't edit it down because of the way that that time period was, of course, when that movie came out. So, yeah, you're exactly right, is that in the world of preservation, it's trying to maintain exactly what that video game was at mm-hmm. that point in time. Um, so video games coming down to it. Yeah, it's that's a very important part of it, especially. Well, and and, you know, it. Beyond that, it there there's two aspects of that too. It's you know what the code looked like, what they had to code in, mm-hmm. um, their coding style, and then what 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 they were actually able to turn out as a final product. You know at, that that you know you were able to consume, even if it was just for a demo of something that never actually came out. I mean, could you imagine if we had preserved data of scale bound for someone to just try out. It's a very interesting thought on it, especially. Yeah. Any type of demo situation where like a, a demo took place on a level that, you know, never existed in the actual full release of a game or, or if someone was able to just go on and, and view, you know, segments of code, you know, I know, that that gets into a little bit of touchy area, but mm-hmm. and we'll get into that later, especially. I mean, there there are certain areas where you could just say, "Hey, you know this this is an example of generalized code from the game," and there there should be points where you could just pick 
code that would just be nonsense in all honesty and wouldn't make make sense to mo- most people and even you know to people that it did make sense to they'd be going where the hell did they use that but Absolutely. i mean just yeah. just for people to be able to see you know i i, I think that's important you know a- especially as a as a huge growing media in in the world mm-hmm. yeah i think where it comes down to is a lot of the learning more than anything, especially for someone who might be working towards like the, like maybe working towards getting into the video game industry to Mm -hmm. have access to something like that, where it's, it's not going to be impacting anything to the company that it came from necessarily, but will allow them to at least kind of work from that point in time forward to show like how development on things have progressed as well to maintain that, of course. Right. Because you look at a lot of, of college and university, hell, even like high school programs and and the stuff you can get to online for coding. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the time when you're learning about coding stuff, you're always doing the very rudimentary, very simple stuff. Like you need to make your code say hello world. Yeah. You know, that's simple enough. And that's some of those things you're going to find as rudimentary in video game design and development. I mean, look at, look at what happened like with doom when that originally came out. And Mm -hmm. then we got Wolfenstein off of that. And, um, we got, um, kind of going off of that as well. Quake, we got Duke Nukem. We got a lot of things that really kind of branched out from there that used a lot of the underlying things. And you look at what like original doom used to be and look at like doom eternal. Now it's like, imagine putting someone in there who needs to learn about like, okay, how did we progress really to this point in the design and development of a game with coding? You kind of keep them all in one series and then you kind of let them learn about it, of course. But again, like you said, and we'll talk about here in a moment, was the issues, of course, with access to said source code, Mm -hmm. you know, being able to actually kind of dive in deeper and look at some of that. Uh, Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting, especially. But let's go ahead and hop actually into that, into uh, the legality on things when it comes with video game preservation. So a lot of these organizations who are working to preserve titles, unfortunately, have to go the route of emulation and working basically with just the software that the machine uses. Right. Um, Consoles, of course, especially very old consoles. um, It really hurts to say, of course, very old consoles, but I'm thinking like at least probably like the mid nineties level of consoles, especially stuff that has been so out of print. And, you know, or like those things that are like really super collector things like Jaguar, um, the Mm -hmm. old Gizmondo, um, handheld oh geez i I know exactly it's like these are some names that are coming to your head it's like god i forgot all about these but those are things you want to preserve is that it's like you want to preserve the successes but you also want to preserve the failures right and of course a lot of that makes sense especially for some of that older tech especially going back to the magnavox odyssey a lot of that stuff is not going to survive unless it's meticulously taken care of um i had shown my daughter because she was very interested in something about the moon we were watching a video about them preserving neil armstrong's um suit that he actually wore when walking on the moon and they were like going through and doing these 3d scans of it different ways they were doing all these different pictures of it so they could actually see every single detail of that spacesuit down to the down to like the single stitch in that um in that actual suit itself and it's like that's one thing of course with video game preservation that emulation is trying to do is Mm -hmm. essentially do that is get it down to the level that that game used to be at even if you don't have the physical system and the cartridge because 
some of that stuff isn't going to work anymore. You know, some of that stuff doesn't right. actually have the support behind it. Look at, let's say looking at a, a game to preserve Duck Hunt, for example. The light gun that's actually used to be able to play that game works only really with CRT TVs. There's right. no real way to duplicate that same sort of flashing ability for at least the gun to absorb and recognize that it made a shot with the screen. There's no sort of ability with it on current uh, LCD, OLED um, technology. There, there's no way for it to really do that. I think there's some reverse engineering things that have been done to make it work. And there, but there, there have been, and you know that they work remarkably well on on monitors and HD TVs. Um, but it's spe- specific titles, and it, it's mm-hmm. some of it can be finicky. Yeah. But the, when you can get it working, yeah, they work great. But it it just comes down to you know. Mm-hmm. We don't use that type of technology anymore, so right. that that particular light gun um, isn't isn't applicable to modern technology. Mm-hmm. So when it comes down to the actual preservation, I know I use that, but obviously you're not going to go and emulate a light gun. I mean, I can imagine if you're using an emulator or something, you're not going to have an emulator on your phone, you know, which of course, by every definition is actually illegal, but you're not going to have an emulator on your phone and plug a light gun into the USB type C port on the bottom of your phone and just be sitting there with the, with the gun and shooting at your phone there. But I was using that as an example, at least of the older technology. And the only way you can really kind of preserve some of that is through emulation. Now the legal area for a lot of that isn't necessarily um, a gray area. It is truly black and white. It's either legal in the sense that you own the console and that the software Mm -hmm. you're pulling off of it um, and the BIOS, of course, you using it yourself is fair use. That actually falls into copyright law that it is considered fair use because you still own that property. If you go and download a BIOS from somebody else or the software from someone else or you distribute the BIOS and software that you have, now you enter the other side of the territory where things truly are illegal. Right. Because that is still the property of that company in question. And we've seen it plenty of times the way Nintendo has gone after people, like has truly gone after people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where you run into a very interesting black and white area when it comes to it. And the only way truly to preserve some of these titles is to go through emulation, whether it's because trying to find some of those titles are next to impossible, especially if they were like one off things on the Super Nintendo that were released for a very short period of time. And it turns out they were garbage. So the game stops of those points in times, the EB games decided to break all the cartridges to, you know, get well, rid of them. Yeah, and- I mean, even then you think about like, uh, what was it? Too human. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I want to say this was just before I worked there, or maybe it happened on a day that I was off. Um, but we had to take all the copies of too human off the shelf or GameStop had to, I should say. And, just randomly one day they were like, pull all the copies of Two Human, destroy them. Which one was Two Human again? Can you remind me of which um, game that was? That was the futuristic Norse one done by, oh shoot, I'm trying to think of the studio. They no longer exist because of um, where this is going into actually. Um, but it, it's like Norse futuristic third person hack and slash RPG uh very bizarre gameplay kind of it didn't hit the it hit hit its mark um but in spite of it not hitting its mark they actually the uh company that produced the game actually sued 
Um, what was it? Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, it was Epic, I believe. Yeah, or uh, yeah, it was. They they sued Epic uh, for use of the Unreal Engine. Well, come to find out, they did not have a license uh, for the Unreal Engine. So then it got the lawsuit got turned around back on them, and well, they're not a company any longer. Yeah. They're, they're actually the same company, I believe, that produced uh, uh, Eternal Darkness. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least now Epic Games has the Unreal Engine available for a free license instead, up to, you know, a certain revenue point. Silicon so, Knights. That's who it was. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, Sorry. Brain fart there. That's all right. That's all good. But yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, all, it all came down to a legal issue. Now... Um, where I, I would think that game wasn't necessarily the greatest game personally when I played it. Um, mm-hmm. It was eh, but it's not one that I would go back to and, right. and try and actually finish or, you know, finish the, the beginning for that matter. But <laughs> just the same, I think it is important to um, hold on to the code, to retain the code. Um, that That is still a piece of history. It's something that happened. I mean, you you look at like... The Smithsonian, you know, Mm -hmm. they document follies as well as they do successes. Absolutely. Yeah, and the only way you're going to be able to teach the future generations is to look at both sides of it, the successes and the failures. It's like what you were talking about earlier is that if you want to know what a successful game looks like, like here they are, and everybody's going to know what those are, but it's like what were the ones that didn't do as well? Which were the ones that really did get stuck kind of in the lexicon as being – like not necessarily terrible games, but games that just were one-offs. And that's where it leads into the next thing though, of course, is like, um, is what's just effectively titled abandonware. Yeah. Is those from companies where the companies don't exist anymore. Um, you know, so where who I'm, owns it? Who, yeah. who can you actually pay the rights for, or for that matter, if you do actually attain the software, Who's going to come after you or try and claim the rights at that point? Yeah, absolutely. So like I'm using, of course, I'm using the example here, and that's who I needed to confirm on the uh, article here, was uh, a good example is Black and White. So the Black and White, Black and White 2 were made by Lionhead Studios. Of course, they were acquired by Microsoft, Mm -hmm. and Microsoft decided, of course, to shut down that studio. But Black and White and Black and White 2 are still available for purchase out there, and you can still play them. But any certain bugs or problems that you come across in either of those games, that's it. Unless the community finds a way to patch around them, that's what you have. And so, of course, because the companies aren't around anymore necessarily to hold on to them and the rights now belong to another company, Microsoft now being the case, that's where things get very interesting about how those games can be presented to um, an audience and how they can be held on to for that future audience, mm-hmm. you know, is being able to actually get behind a lot of that. The bonus, at least, though, is in the case of Black and White, Black and White 2, is that because they can still run on modern hardware, you're only going to start running into that issue depending on how things change in the underlying code of said hardware and said operating systems. Because Black and White, Black and White 2 were never console games. Right. They were PC games. So you're either going to have to stick with some sort of PC that runs that older software that maybe it came out on or even, you know, wherever it stopped at, you're going to need to be basically at that version to be able to have available for people to, to see and to work with and to observe. So that's another thing to also consider as well. Um, 
Another one I consider kind of an abandoned wear, and this is something I've talked about several times now in in many different episodes, is uh, demo discs. And of course, the demo disc that always comes to mind for me, because I had an incident with it, of course, was Beautiful Joe 2. Right. And Beautiful Joe 2 in that demo, um, for reminding the audience, of course, had a bug in it that I wasn't notified about. Uh, This was on the PlayStation 2, so back at that point in time, email wasn't really a thing that everybody went and signed up for. Um, at least like all the time. And I hadn't had one at that point yet. So I received my notification via snail mail. Uh, but beautiful Joe two and a demo disc directly from PlayStation would cause, uh, would had a bug built into it. That would actually cause your memory card to corrupt. If you had a memory card plugged in and the only way you could get past it is you had to format your memory card. So anything on there couldn't be read, but you had to delete it anyway. And there was no way around it. Sony was not issuing brand new demo discs to be able to uh, get past the issue. It was just a game you could not play if you had a memory card plugged in. And I lost a lot of saved data on that memory card. So for something like that, especially if you want to go back to failures and especially because the demo discs are technically abandoned. Right. I mean, you like we talked kind of I mentioned earlier is that demo discs have levels and designs on there that didn't make it into the final game. You know, that's the type of stuff that also needs to be preserved because absolutely because this is like where the the devs and publishers are trying to put their best foot forward to be able to sell games at that point in time. You want your demo to be good Mm -hmm. to be able to sell that game. Something like that enters that uh, enters that realm of of things that need to be studied and look at to know better, especially for the future. But of course, we run into this issue anyway, and we talked about this. Um, in our online only discuss a few weeks ago was about uh, day one patches as well. At mm-hmm. that point in time, there wasn't a such thing as, you know, there was no such thing as a day one patch. The game you got was the game you got. And if it was broken, yeah, it, it was, you know, it depends on how the devs and publishers and even the retailers handle it. Yeah, it had to be complete when you bought it. Otherwise, you bought E.T. <laughs> yeah. Or you bought Donkey Kong 64 that came with an expansion pack that was only necessary because it helped fix a bug and fixed it for some weird reason. Yeah, that was it. So that's, that's one of those things though, is that it's like that itself. Demo discs are abandoned and need to really make sure to stay there though, too. But that's just a whole other litany of things to really focus on on top of it. But on the other side of uh, the, the preservation aspect, I also think that the, 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 the information needs to be made available in some form or way to the public, whether it be some sort of membership that you can go on and view videos of the content um, from a game or like a full playthrough or, you know, even play like a demo of what, what, you know, was available at that time, you know, give, give us a, the uh, digital museum tour that we got during the pandemic, you know, I, I I'd like to be able to see that uh, be made available in in the video game preservation realm because I mean obviously we're making forth an effort to to actually you know record you know what what's happened in the industry what's happened like now it, you you've you've said demo discs and. Um, some of that has started, but I, I don't feel like it, it, it ne- is as much as it needs to be with the demo discs mm-hmm. um, because there there is content there that, you know, you 
just wouldn't have seen elsewhere. I mean, there there were also demo discs that the whole game was on the demo disc, but you only got a portion of it. Or flip side of that, there there was a chunk of the game on the demo disc, but the entire map was there. So, you know, you may not have been able to to play any of the other game, but you got to see everything that was in it. Absolutely. No, you were yeah. absolutely right in that one. Yep. So it, it it it's just important and I, I, I think that um other people should be able to view it too. Yeah. Oh, especially and especially. have access to it. I, yeah. I think there there should be some uh video game Smithsonian, you know, where you, you can go up and in a on on a pedestal in a case you can see said beautiful D- joe demo disc with a fried memory card and say this is why we don't trust demo discs <laughs> you know because <laughs> i mean you think about it that would have happened today um if if you know because that that was probably distributed by psm um uh, or playstation magazine uh for those who aren't versed mm-hmm. um well, there are a lot of things out there, magazine-related, where there were demo discs that may yeah, not I have guess, been, I guess especially there were like, kind of then. like official PlayStation discs or Xbox discs right. or, or Nintendo that discs, and that, now, but they still worked. Yeah. I mean, there would be a lawsuit, and the company would have to pay money, mm-hmm. and people would probably get discounted games, or they would get like a, a $5 you know, credit somewhere or $5 to their bank account because, you know, it would affect so many people that the settlement would be stupid. And, you know, Joe Blow would only get two and a half dollars from the whole settlement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, back then, like you said, there was nothing. They, they sent an apology letter, said, don't do it. You know, don't put it in. And if you did, then it happened. Oh, well. Yeah, my poor... 100% completion on Kingdom Hearts 2, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, and Vice City, and a whole bunch of other games. Yeah. Yeah. Stupid, beautiful Joe 2. <laughs> Man. Anyway, uh, we've focused, of course, on a lot of the software side of things, both in the physical and logical sense, of course, talking about the games themselves and even source code. Um, what about the hardware like we've talked of course a little bit about hardware Mm -hmm. like you know i made some examples there like um in preserving the hardware like with the uh the jaguar the gizmondo um but there's a whole other slew of hardware out there for like one-off things here and i know of course some people might be like rolling their eyes at me when i say this of course you know we've got the wikipedia article up here of course to kind of um help refresh us a little bit especially given the fact that you know we're not experts in a lot of this we're We've just been around long enough, though, and we've played on quite a few systems and have played quite a few games that, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've at least got an understanding of how important a lot of these things are. And thank God, at least a lot of these companies re-release some things, though, too, even though it's like 60 bucks for the game I owned like so many years ago now. Man, you right. are killing me. But anyway, that's a discussion for another day, too. But looking at hardware here, of course, you know, you do look at a lot of those one-offs, like look at the N-Gage. As an example, it's like the first gaming phone. Um, Go back and look at um, the different variations of some of the consoles that came out. I remember having my uh, Super Nintendo as a kid, the boxier version. And then there was one of the Super Nintendo that was like a rounded off one. And it actually came with 
um, controllers that had the colored A, B, X, and Y buttons, like, you know, in the... Oh, in really? The, yeah, it was color. It had the colored buttons there. Like the, it was like blue, red, yellow, and green were the actual buttons themselves. Um, uh. It looked more like the, it looked more like Super Nintendo or like Nintendo had actually brought the Super Famicom over that they had made for right, Japan, right. Um, but then had actually just Americanized it instead, you know, like with the support for NTSC, with the um, um, with it actually having English instructions and the English printing, of course, on it and that, too. But it looked like that's what they did. But of course, it's a variation. And then you look at like the PlayStation one. You know, where the PlayStation 1 came out in its form, in its boxier form. Right. And, of course, we had the PSX, which was a very small version, but it still played PlayStation 1 games. You know, it was the, it was the small little, like, white version Oh, no, you it. have that You have that backwards. The, the PSX was the big gray one. The PS1, and it was actually spelled out 1, um, was the little white one mm, okay yeah, huh. that, that you could get the attachable screen for and yeah the I, I car really, kit and yeah yeah i remember the attachable screen and that was actually it, really neat yeah it was all oem gear mm-hmm. and stuff it was really cool mm-hmm. but even like the the great example here that i'm seeing of course is one that i think everybody can get behind especially is the only known working version of the super nintendo playstation combo Right. The actual working model that I'm sure a lot of people, if you if you actually have not seen this thing yet, you need to get out there and look. Um, engineer Ben Heck, I think. Is it Ben Heck? I think that's his name. I don't recall. Why am I why am I forgetting his name? I need to take a look here. If I'm if I'm wrong, then I'm gonna sound like an idiot, but you know, <laughs> such is life. Let's see. Uh let's see. Ben Heck. Yep, that's him. Ben Heck. Okay, I'm not totally off. Uh, but Ben Heck is a well-known engineer and, of course, tinkerer, does a lot of YouTube videos, of course, on the things he's tinkering with. But he was given an opportunity, of course. Um, he's, a, he's a very popular engineer out there. But he was given the opportunity to actually bring this back to life. And really? so he, yeah, he had a whole video series about getting access to this. And, I mean, each video feels like it's anywhere from 35 to 45 minutes. But he goes through, and you actually see him going through the signal processing to figure out what chip is what, where is this working, where is this not working, you know, how does the cartridge actually interface with this, how does the disk thing work, you know, it's, he goes through and actually has to reverse engineer this to get it working again. That's crazy. And this device ended up, I think, not even staying in the hands of the person who originally owned it. I think it actually ended up going to auction. I'll have to look closer to see exactly what it was, but the actual name of it was the Super NES CD-ROM. Mm. Um, because that was the joint thing between Sony and Nintendo to be able to go ahead and combine these consoles and add the power of a disc drive or of a CD drive, not a floppy disc, but CD drive to be able to put on higher quality games. Of course, that fell through. There was only um, things showing off, of course. At that time, there was no E3. It was CES where Nintendo showed this um, or Sony was showing this off. But at that time is when Nintendo basically went behind Sony and made an agreement with Philips on doing right. something different. And so Sony's like, well, we've got all this here. We're just going to go release our own thing. And that's where the PlayStation came from. But that's one piece of, of hardware out there that is such a crazy part of history, especially for a lot of the back and forth that oh, yeah. came of that, that needs to be maintained at least and put into a spot where it shows like these companies did try to work together. Um, or what, what about the uh, pocket really? stations? 
pocket stations. Remind me of those. That ones. was a PlayStation. Um, I want to say it was a PlayStation One memory card that had. Well, essentially, it was a uh, Dreamcast VMU, but PlayStation style. That's what I was about to ask because you were yeah. the way you're starting to describe it. Like the, I thought you might have been mixing it up with the Dreamcast one. But no, no, they you're... they they had a pocket station. It actually made it to market. I want to say all of for like five or seven days or something like that. Um, I don't know if it actually hit the stores here in the states, um, but they were supposed to. And after they got pulled from the shelves, they they just they were done, and it was actually required to to get a golden chocobo in uh, Final Fantasy VIII. Wow! Yeah, you're yeah. not kidding. It's a memory card peripheral by Sony Computer Entertainment from the PlayStation console. Combination of a memory card and a miniature. This is funny. I don't know why, but a miniature personal digital assistant, of course, a PDA. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's crazy! Like I didn't realize that they had even done something like this that's funny yeah but it's it's the fact that you know at least they were kind of getting out there i mean you think like as kids the tamagotchi when it first came out that's what all of those really looked like was a lot of those like digital pets but of course they had the ability to be like a memory card and even if you look in the uh, first release manuals here in the united states of uh final fantasy 8 it does describe in with pictures the uh po- the pocket station so the plan for it to come out here in the united states but it never actually released stateside it looks like it was right. specifically japan only so that's another part of it though we know the dreamcast of course had it but then you do have that one often mm-hmm. there was another thing that came to mind there especially console wise i was just thinking of oh yes this is this came into my head before we started talking about that before we started talking about the pocket station um development consoles like the actual oh, development man. systems. And I'm not like if anybody recalls, of course, when we were all still trying to figure out what the PlayStation five was going to look like. And we finally started getting leaks of of what the the dev station looked like, what the actual dev unit looked like. Yeah. And of course, it was this weird alien spaceship looking thing with this massive venting system on top of it uh, that just kind of threw off everybody it's like is this really what they're going to do or is this dev system just required that much cooling and then even like kind of circling back towards some of these other dev systems where like uh oh what was it the um wasn't it like the playstation 3's dev unit itself was just a giant computer tower with like a playstation logo on it i mean i've seen a lot of the different, i think so yeah like I'm, I'm sure i can bring up some pictures of like um like console let's see console dev units i mean you can go on ebay because people have actually had these and um um like showing these off you know um but yeah like uh like i've got a picture here so development kits there's a picture here of the what appears to be i think the xbox next to the playstation 2 next to the gamecube next to the dreamcast i'll show you that one kyle you know, in oh, order. that is cool. Yeah. And so you look at them, of course, if, if you just go and uh, Google this, you know, you can see what these things look like. And of course, like for the Xbox, it looks just like a regular gaming tower. The PlayStation 2 one looks more like a just a PlayStation 2 that we know with more on it. It's definitely much thicker. The GameCube one is a PC tower. It looks more like your old school compact or gateway PC towers, but it has GameCube ports on the front of it. And then the Dreamcast one is about three quarters the size of the GameCube one, but has Dreamcast ports on the front of it. Yeah, it's funny because they they just look like, I don't know, you were 
you were taking a picture or something with the uh w- what is that uh filter on TikTok and or on like Snapchat? It's like a time filter or something. Yeah. That's that's a fair one. I yeah, think, and it so just looks like, like you ran it down the system, so you made it look really tall. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes it look way goofy. But beyond consoles, um, there there has been another major one that that's come up lately. Well, before I get away from consoles, actually, um, I guess the one of the most major things that that um, has struck me about consoles mm-hmm. is the. Uh, Oh, and now I'm trying to think the uh, the CR twenty thirty two bombs. Oh yes, that's that's one thing that really ends up becoming a problem for preservation because yeah. it was recently reported sometime within the last couple months that uh, PlayStation threes. I mean, this is really for anything there, but PlayStation threes are more so affected by the CR-2032 issue. Yeah, it's a because, CMOS bomb, essentially. Yeah, because for anybody, of course, who doesn't understand this, so um, the CMOS, don't ask me exactly what the acronym stands for again, but it's it, effective, if, it effectively keeps the time and memory going for your um, for the memory built onto the main board of, uh, of a computer. If you open up your desktop computer, your laptop, you're most likely going to find some sort of um, CMOS battery in there, usually like a CR2032 watch battery. That helps to actually keep the system time. And did you find it? It Yeah. Um, What's it stand for? CMOS. So it is the Complementary Metal Oxide Semiconductor. Awesome. I was hoping yeah. it was like clock memory optimization system, whatever. Anyway, uh, but but basically it is the system. Yeah, clock. it's to help keep the system clock there. It's like one thing in troubleshooting PCs is sometimes is to remove the CMOS battery, drain some of that power out, put it back in and see if that can help maybe re- um, alleviate an issue that comes with the BIOS. But again, back to the news story is that the PlayStation 3 suffers from a problem with the CMOS battery where when that goes even if you can get in there and potentially replace it, you have the potential to lose access to the ability to earn uh, PlayStation trophies. Or run games at or all. Or even run games. More um, so digital I, ones, I, I think, right? I, I think that uh, doesn't necessarily affect the PlayStation 3 as much as it does the 4 and 5. Um, but, yeah, um, apparently um, on, on the 4 and 5, it, you just, it, it's done. Once you cannot, if you cannot connect to the PlayStation Network after CMOS death, then your system is effectively dead then. Yeah, and if you really reverse the time there, especially before storage was really starting to meet like the solid state side of the of the world, um, go back and look at your Super Nintendo games, your Game Boy games. Go pop one of those open and look. I mean, hell, there's enough Game Boy games out there that had a translucent case that you could see the CMOS battery right there, the CR2032 battery. That right there is what maintains your memory. So if you're a person who completed the Pokédex in Pokémon Red, that battery fails, your entire Pokédex is gone, especially if you still maintain a copy of that. I got a a copy of Pokémon Blue around here somewhere that's probably due for a battery changeout. And actually, I I was going to get to that here in just a second. Um but the 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 fact that that PlayStation has effectively 
essentially given their their consoles a definite death date mm-hmm. that that your console will just commit suicide and it's done like and it it's not its own it's not its fault it's just cuz it has a battery in it that is fallible at some point um i i don't know it it just it makes you think that you know without the ability to reaccess those online through some sort of outlet are we going to lose access to a whole generation of games because of that and then going on to where you were going with the uh actual games having the uh the CMOS batteries um there was one kind of cool thing that um just recently got released um, I don't remember. I, I don't think it was 8-Bit Doe. Um, there was another third-party company that released it, but it allows you to make direct backups of your save file. Not tamper with them whatsoever, but back up your save file to your computer for your Pokemon games um, and other games that would require a CMOS. And that allows you to actually replace the CMOS and clone the save back to the cartridge and this is a recent release thing very interesting i wonder where the ramifications come into that because if the save file itself is something that you can't modify that right there in of itself is a good thing especially because then it maintains the it maintains the legitimacy and the accuracy of the data there because of course a lot of the concern especially especially for us who have been around since Pokemon red, blue and yellow first dropped, of course, is how Pokemon has evolved and how competitive it can be. And of course the access to certain types of Pokemon. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, as time has gone on and the way trades of course can work up and through the systems, it's one of those things that does end up getting into one of those areas where you don't want to hack yourself in some Pokemon though to be able to do that. So to be able to have at least a lockdown copy of your save, to be able to preserve it and on top of it, be able to change out the battery to preserve the game itself, I think is a net positive. But of course, for the layman who maybe has a copy of Pokemon silver somewhere and a game boy color sitting around just because it's like, Oh, I had these as a kid. I haven't touched them. They're just sitting here in a box. You know, they're not going to go and rush to do something like that. These are your people who, who constantly strive to play these things or or are on them still even all the time. Especially right. because shiny hunting is still such a big thing and will continue to be a big thing because you can find them in those older games. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess the way the conversation needs to go now is we've talked about the software. We've talked about the hardware, mm-hmm. and we've talked about, of course, some of the components of the hardware, especially when it comes to online. We've talked about um, batteries as well. I mean, one of the things we didn't mention about hardware was some of the internal components of things that you can't even get anymore. like Or maybe even accessories and issues we're currently having with accessories that we could have potentially looked into the past and solved or found more simple solutions that have been uncovered. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Just well, just having those on file, having having a place to go visit them or having, you know, a curated collection even if it's not 
fully open to the public, but at least viewable by the public in some form uh, of consumption, even if it's, like I said, your digital COVID museum experience, give us something, Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. But because we've covered all these, and of course, in the hardware side, that really includes a lot of that one-off hardware. You know, we mentioned the Super Nintendo CD-ROM, you know, Mm -hmm. could have mentioned like the 64DD in there as well, which... We actually had a very fresh copy, dev copy of that, the dev system for it come up in the uh, um, out there in the world in the last couple of months as well, too. Um, but now we get into the efforts of those who are actually trying to do this. And there are quite a few organizations out there. Yeah. And one of the things I was looking up as trying to research a lot of this, especially, is that I wasn't necessarily just looking at the preservation of games, but the classification of games as art. Because if you look at how much effort goes into the preservation of art, like look at what happens with trying to rest, like restore an old painting or trying to keep a statue, you know, in one piece that was made out of marble 600 years ago, 500 years ago. even more recent, recovering old film. Recovering old film, especially, because a lot of that older film could be volatile. One of the most iconic uh, films of all time, vampire films of all time, was actually a lost footage film. That's Nosferatu. Ooh, that is a very big one. Especially because that's a very historical piece of film, though, too. Because of film preservation we have Nosferatu now. So, I mean, think about where film preservation started and where it's come now. Mm -hmm. And I think we're in the infancy of that. I also think so as well. And that's one of those things I looked at is that back in 2011, the Smithsonian Institute ran a um, art of video games um, project presentation Mm -hmm. a art of video games um collection and of course they had the public vote on those that they felt you know kind of really defined the artistic side of video games themselves Mm -hmm. and of course it went back through the generations i mean things like uh pac-man and pong were on there of course because you think those ran on on systems that were definitely at the time that you know that was the way to enjoy content you know that was the way to enjoy video games and as much processing power as you could get out of them you know, up through like Tron and then, of course, pushing ahead to like um, Super Mario World, um, Metal Gear Solid, Shadows of the Colossus, Super Mario Galaxy. You but know, I there's think... a lot of those that fall like that were presented, of course, you know, and put into that because they were voted on as being, you know, and that wasn't all of them. They were being used to present a kind of a storytelling of the evolution of the art of video games themselves. And, of course, a lot of people out there. Um, especially the late Roger Ebert had a lot to say about how video games were not necessarily art. Right. But of course, art is in the eyes of the beholder. And, you know, of course, the the drawing that my daughter made is to her art and to us art, but to everybody else, it's just some scribbles on some paper. So, of course, again, it is in the eyes of the beholder. But the fact that paintings and statues, photographs, film, print, are all considered forms of art and have been worked to preserve over, you know, years, hundreds of years. Film, of course, only really in the last century and a half, honestly, more so like really the last century than anything. Mm -hmm. But the fact that a lot of the effort there is 
been to put to preserve that because it is considered art. You absolutely are right. Is that video games as an art form are kind of in their infancy. So you look at, you know, it's not just one person making a video game Mm -hmm. that has the artistic quality of something like, you know, um, Van Gogh's Starry Night or the Mona Lisa, but it's a team of artists and designers and coders and that who are making something here that that can just still leave you awestruck. I mean, remember, um, you know, look at the first time you actually went up against a Colossus in Shadows of the Colossus. Right. Look at the first time you were um, crawling up the back of a Titan in God of War 3. Look at um, look at Metal Gear Solid, of course, like Metal Gear Solid 2, when you're walking across the bridge, getting ready to jump over it. But even know? even not just the the iconography of it, mm-hmm. but like think about like the uh, Parappa the Rappers or the uh, the Jet Set Radios, that was what the I was Fantasy also about Stars, to you yeah. know. Look at Final Fantasy. Look at Final too. Fantasy. Go I back. Mean, go, go back to your original sprites for Final Fantasy up oh, to yeah. what it's become now. You know. There's a lot of it there, and I think that's what will really help the drive to actually further along preservation because a lot of this for video game preservation is going to require some of those higher authorities in the world of art to help mitigate some of those problems that end up coming across. It's just how to handle something that's not a physical item that you can put in your hand um, you know, that may only be a digital representation, a digital only game. How do you preserve something like that? You know? And you know what what's even more crazy is you bring up Final Fantasy and they just re-released all the original um pixel art versions of them. Mm-hmm. Yes, they did. And the release was polarizing because there were people that were like this is terrible. Why did they do this if they re- they they did remakes of all of them? Why, why would you even want to do this? Mm-hmm. And there are people exactly. that are going, wow, this is this is amazing. This is like the purest form that I can play without having the original, you know, NES, the original Super NES. Yeah. And if th- the fact that it was polarizing, the fact that people could, could stand up and go, this is crap or this is amazing – I mean, that should say something in and of itself. That really should. And that's where it's like that should really lend into how a lot of people approach the preservation of things because video games are a very big part of the culture that we've had in the last 30 years especially. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at look at what we've gotten out of video games so far. You know, like not even necessarily like the like toy tie-ins or, or merchandising or anything like that because – for everything there, of course, like TV shows for kids, that's always been a given. Right. But look at, you know, the movies that have been made out of video games, not all of them being good, of course, but look at the the television series that have been made out of it. Look at the books that have come out of it. Look at mm-hmm. the look at the communities that have created their own works based off of that, you know, especially cosplay and the fan art. And the um, the fan films and that that have come out of it, especially, you know, th- there's a lot of inspiration they take from that. And the only way you can really classify it is truly art. And I think for a lot of that to be preserved, um, you know, or at least to be able to get a lot more support for that is that's where it helped classifying it. I mean, you know, we do have a list of organizations here. You know, there's the National Video Game Museum. There's mm-hmm. the Video Game History Foundation. There is the Video Game Heritage Society out in the UK, you know, that they do work together 
to, you know, they work together and separately in some forms, of course, to actually make sure that a lot of these things are cataloged and put together. So we do preserve this history, but to classify video games as art, um, may actually help to further along that preservation, maybe put even more emphasis on saving that. Cause like I was just seeing it today, there's a, there's that new, uh, movie coming out from Ryan Reynolds that looks like it's based in like a GTA, a, a Grand Theft Auto oh, style world. Yeah, yeah. It's like Last Guy or something like that, or or Free Guy or whatever. Yeah, Free Guy. Yeah. I think. And that game itself, of or that that movie itself, like, like somebody hops into it, it looks at it, it's like, wow, this looks like Saints Row, or this looks like Grand Theft Auto. You know, it's like there's a lot of things that take inspiration on that. Like look at, um, look at, um you know, some of these other, uh, TV shows that are out there like Mr. R uh, yeah. Mr. Robot, for example, I think, isn't that it? No. What, what was the one on USA? Was it Mr. Robot? No. Fuck. What the hell is that? God dang it. Oh, I don't know. was a movie. It was a TV show. Maybe that is it. Let me see. Yeah. Mr. Robot. It's a, it's about a computer programmer. Um, you know, computer programmer by day, hacker by night type thing. Huh? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of things that draw on video games with that, too. I mean, good another good example, look at The Matrix and look at how important that is to film and what oh, that yeah. introduced. You go and look at that. It's like this feels like this, you know, it spawned a lot of video games after it. But it's like you could go in there with that vibe that's like I feel like I'm watching a video game movie, you know, with some of that. And look at how much that contributed to the world of of movies and television with like bullet time and such you know there's well, a lot there and we're we're at a level now too where so many games are like on par with movies you look at uh ghost of tsushima uh the the visuals and everything were meant to emulate in a kura kurosawa film of the like what 1950s mm-hmm so, I mean, it's really cool that they did that. I mean, it's really cool that they looked at the film and actually because of the popularity of the game and a recent natural disaster in Japan, there is actually a historic arch that was in Ghost of Tsushima that, that's being reconstructed because of the popularity of the game. They were, they were actually able to generate the funds mm -hmm. because of the love of the game. Oh. My, my phone decided <laughs> to just try and start looking up stuff. You're, that's nice. That's awesome that you were able to kick that off there. Yeehaw. Yeah. But we have all these organizations that are out there doing it. But I just wonder, though, especially because the federal government and, of course, the, 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 the national governments out there will finance and grant and fund mm -hmm. these preservation efforts for, for – important pieces of art, important works in that to make sure that there is a legacy to be able to pass along to the next generation. If we could have some sort of classification like that, you know, for video games, these industry or these not industries, excuse me, these organizations, these groups may be able to actually get more help that they need to be actually, actually be able to work to preserve these titles. And I think they're going to be better at doing it than the game companies themselves, because granted, yes, Microsoft has been doing a great job mm -hmm. with trying to emphasize a lot of the backwards compatibility on their system. Sony used to be good at it, but of course, a lot of it has been locked down now. So you still need to have their older consoles to play. Right. Nintendo, of course, with the virtual console, that's great. But 
the problem you have is that those are all bound by a digital service. Mm -hmm. They are not physical copies. So it's great that you're preserving that and you are making money off of it, of course. But to truly preserve something, because someone there at Microsoft could just say, well, we don't need to do this anymore. We're just going to pull the plug. And then all that history is gone. Those services are doing both a service and a disservice because it would be, it'd be more generous to the community, to the world, to have this as something that's open and available, you know, like make it like a library. Like you don't necessarily need to make it like a library. We can go and like check out a book or anything. Right. You know, in, in this case, itself. make it like a library where it's like you go pull a game off of a shelf and, you know, you go to a station that has a console in it or it has an older PC that's not, you know, networked in because of vulnerabilities and that, you know. Right. But you can put that disc in. You can put that item in and, and you can just go and start playing and, and start reliving some of that experience. I mean, like the experience that I would have playing Super Mario World on an original Super Nintendo would be more of an exciting thing for me than it is playing Super Mario World on a Super Nintendo Classic. It is, in oh, yeah. to, in all reality, the same game. But to have a Super Nintendo plugged into the back of a CRT television to play Super Mario World or Donkey Kong or even the original Super Mario Kart, there's a lot that goes with it. You know, there's a lot that that brings back more of those memories as a kid and allows you to share that with the next generation and beyond. And so I think having something like that available out there or at least recognizing video games as a form of art would help these preservation efforts and being able to pass things along. I think that's that's my big take on a lot of it. Oh, I don't yeah, know where definitely. you think about it, but that's my big take. No, I, 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 I feel the same way. I mean, like I have these old consoles, my oldest one being an, an actual um, Magnavox Odyssey 2. Wow, okay. Um, and I have the box for that one, wow. uh, which is something I can't say about some of my other, well, actually almost all of my old classic consoles. Boxes just don't survive mm. uh, for me. Small spaces and moving around and whatnot. Oh, yeah, I, I completely understand. Like I had to get rid of my Xbox One box but you know even even to be able you know people people like to display knickknacks and stuff on a shelf even to be able to put that out on a shelf and and display that for people to look at and come to my house and go whoa what is that and me go let me tell you about that yeah that is super cool (laughs) yeah like one of those things i want to do for myself is um I would like to be able to, like, I've got an old Xbox One controller over there that doesn't work anymore, mm-hmm. and I saw something on Reddit where someone had done this, but I want to do an exploded view of the controller in a shadow box, where it's like you take apart that controller and have all of the little bits displayed out in a shadow box to show, like, all the bits and details. Imagine doing something like that for a display and for, like, a history lesson, going all the way back to the original Xbox Duke controller and take apart a Duke controller and an X- and the second-gen Xbox controller, an or Xbox 360 even controller, Even if you could Xbox start One. back at the NES and see the progression of controllers, you know, side-by-side side and be able to, you know, even what would be really cool is if you could, like, put them on, like, a floating thing and just see, you know, oh, this is a NES controller breakdown versus the PS5 controller breakdown versus what a PS2 controller looked like versus mm-hmm. the Duke. 
you know. Yeah. Or see, even yeah. you know what what went into different generations as well as different manufacturers. Yeah. And then even so is like sticking with the actual same manufacturer itself through like take apart a a Nintendo controller next to a Super Nintendo controller next to a virtual uh one of the Virtual Boy controllers, you know, work your way up N64, GameCube, Wii, Wii U, um and then of course now the Switch. You take that apart and you can even show the rudimentary levels of technology there where it's like, okay, on an NES controller, you only had to worry about four, five, six, eight buttons. But now, of course, on a Joy-Con, you've got to worry about a battery in there, Bluetooth. You've got to worry mm-hmm. about the IR sensor in there. You've got to worry about, let's see, what is it? Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe 12 buttons. Just, just kind of thinking right off the top of my head about what's on a Joy-Con right. controller there. So you got to worry about all that. Um, and then, of course, you've got to worry about the actual internal Wi-Fi anyway for or the internal um, protocol for it to sync up with a switch. You know, there's there's a lot mm-hmm. of that there. So that's exactly one of those things, especially for preservation, is to preserve and show how things have evolved. I mean, yeah. that's the whole point of it really is to show how things evolved. Exactly. But, yeah, exactly. But no, you're right. Like having something like that helps to build up that conversation and discussion. Like, you know, it's not video games, but as we're talking here, of course, I've got all my Power Rangers stuff up here on a shelf and there's a lot of it. Like I've actually got several items up there that are original releases back from when they came out. Right. And there are things that are here from Japan that are much better in quality than the stuff that came out in the United States. And it's Mm -hmm. something that I can take and show in a side-by-side comparison and say, here is why they did what they did in Japan. And here's what they did, what, why they did what they did in the United States. It's the same thing you can do exactly with like, like comparing the NES that was released in the United States versus mm-hmm. the Famicom in Japan, where the Japan one was the red and beige plastic, and then the one here in the United States was the gray and black plastic. Right. No, and I, I, I think uh, going into uh, actually education, uh, STEM has become such a big thing he, here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, why are – I mean – we, we've got so many utilities that teach kids games, you know, teach kids how to make games. I mean, especially we've got games that teach games, uh, the, the, the game maker garage before that dreams, uh, before that we've had how many iterations of RPG maker on PlayStation and PC. Mm-hmm. You got you little know, big planet, you've little got big Minecraft, planet, Minecraft. You've got, I mean, yeah, the, the list I goes mean, on for a lot of things. Video game preservation should be taught as maybe even in a minor sense in STEM. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, especially because of course it relate. Yeah. Cause you can look at the physical side of it with the hardware that goes into it and the logical side of it of the software that went into it. It's like, how are these games developed? How is I, it that they are interacted with? And I, I do understand it is a form of entertainment, but I mean, even, even the fact that movies are touched on as a base, you know, even just like, Oh, you know, and by the way, there are movies as well. You experience mm-hmm. that every day. Well, you know, they could do that in school. Oh, by the way, you know, this is what also happened in games at that time because yeah. of this advancement in technology. Mm-hmm. But also, there have been advancements in video games, I think Half-Life 2, that have advanced visual technology in great ways. And the AI as well. Oh, yeah, in yeah. an AI yeah. Yeah. Cause I think even like 
circling kind of back around on the art part though too is it's like what does this game do to you especially like a lot of people will say look at this painting how does it make you feel it's like well we're going to have you play this section of a game you know look at modern warfare 2 and the no russian level yeah. look at um look at um god i just had this in my head there too look at the end of shadows of the colossus look at what Metal Gear Solid 4 made you feel, you know, especially for as your snake crawling through that microwave hallway effectively. Look what at, what, what look does at, three runs in Geometry Wars make you feel? Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Look at look at what. Yeah, it's it's one of those things, especially it's like, how does this make you feel, especially for those games that are like slice of life type games like uh, Life is life Strange. Life is Strange. Um, uh Detroit become human. Detroit become humans. Another Any good David one. Cage game. Yeah. <laughs> Any game that has you emphasizing a lot of time and effort, especially into playing it, like the Red Dead series is a oh, good one yeah. too. Grand Theft Auto. I know Grand Theft Auto, of course, is goofy itself, but even there's a lot of stuff well, in that story. Especially that can in still the, you. the the most recent one, there is so much yeah. in the story. Yeah. So, so much. Yeah, it's like exactly. It's like you go in and play some of these things. It's like, how do you, you know, how do you feel like if you tried to novelize like that, it'd be longer than the Lord of the Rings. Most likely. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cause you yeah, with a lot of the description you have to put into that stuff, absolutely. So yeah. So you're absolutely right, is that when it comes to a level of education, it's like that might be one way to do it, especially because we're at the point now, especially with our age and the fact that I have three kids, that, you know, video games have been a part of their lives effectively their entire life. Mm -hmm. You know, for us, that's been the same way, but we've been there since not necessarily day one, but truly though what feels more like day one just because like you know the nes is what saved the video game industry after the crash yeah. back in the and 80s I, I was and born the year of the release of the nes and you know that that's the start of the resurgence exactly so, you know so i was like kind of there at yeah. the beginning yeah and it's like it's like i played on a nes when i was a little kid i owned a super nintendo as a kid i yeah. worked my way through everything else you were the same way working through things with especially on the sega side for you yeah um, you know, it, it is one of those things that it's like, that is what the generation now truly knows with all the information that's out there, especially. And so video games, if preserved right and presented in their forms, good and bad and ugly and different and unique and bizarre, yeah. that's one of those things that's going to continue. And that's one of those things, <coughs> excuse me, that is one of those things that, will help with video game preservation yeah and then we we i i think at that point it can truly become also a learning experience overall um you know just i you know not not just where we can go with games but where we've been and how games affect us every day absolutely because I don't think there's a moment that goes by now where we can walk around the corner here and not not catch something that is truly video game related. Yeah. Uh, or that's you know, it's not yeah, you know, that doesn't have a, a direct relation to video games, but truly it's like you look at it, it's like, I see where they got that from. I yeah. see where they got that from. So in one way or another, even if we don't even if we can't reach a goal of what these organizations are trying to do to preserve our video game history, there are at least efforts out there to 
keep it going in one form or another and at least keep some things out there and and truly keep video games in the lexicon so you know there is something there but the hope is that at least we can get to a point where we can walk into an organization's building and have access to the stuff that we played as kids and play it in its original true and classic form yeah even if i'm you know just walking around to stations and I get a quick blurb, uh, you know, from so and so telling me a bit about the director, the production studio, and then I get to try out a minute of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be super cool. That would be, and that I think is where we're going to wrap up this week's NPCs discuss. That was video game preservation. Of course, if you happen to be one that works in the video game industry, you happen to be a collector, you happen to be a reverse engineer, you happen to be involved as an indie dev or someone up there, of course, with one of the bigger companies, don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know, of course, because we'd be happy to have you on, especially in any of our future topics. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media at Facebook or at Twitter, of course, and we will get back to you as well. Of course, with this podcast and our other podcast as well, it's all hosted on our home page, anchor.fm slash b-npc-podcast. You can find all of the links to the podcast platforms we are supported on. Please go and subscribe. It helps out the podcast quite a bit, lets us know that you're listening. And of course, we always look for your feedback as well. So please don't forget to drop us a line there. Our email address, of course, is on our anchor.fm page as well. Again, thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in to this week's NPC discussion. We will catch you all next week.